In 2017, I heard about a company that had developed a subscription service that would allow you to go to any movie in any theater for $20 a month. And thinking it was good, too good to be true, I researched it, and then I signed up for it, and I found out, yes, it's true, and I became the number one fan and evangelist for MoviePass. It was great. Rachel and I could go to any movie whenever we wanted in any theater in Tulsa and not have to worry about money. It was great. Until that first email from the CEO. This is how he started. First and foremost, I want to personally apologize to each of you for the inconsistencies and unreliability of our service over the last past few days. We've begun making changes to our service that will help us continue to offer our members a high-value, low-cost, in-theater movie experience. Uh-oh, changes. Then suddenly you couldn't see every movie, only certain movies, you know, like not blockbusters. And then, and then you couldn't go at peak times like Friday or Saturday evening. And then after a while you couldn't go to certain theaters. Pretty soon, you're paying $20 a month to maybe get to go see some crummy movie on Wednesday at 4.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> and not surprisingly, by September 2019, MoviePass had gone out of business. When you quit doing what you were made to do, you become irrelevant. Well, the church's mission what we were made to do is to carry on the work of Jesus, to love our neighbors, to form a new community based on his teachings and upon the salvation that he offers through his life, death, and resurrection. And that's what we are called to do, but there was a huge challenge in the early church in living out that mission. And the challenge was how to blend Jewish believers who had for so long been the chosen people, the special covenant people of God, how to blend them with Gentile believers, Gentiles, everybody else who's not a Jewish. These Gentile believers who had previously not been a part of the chosen people of God but who were now being included in the family of God. You see, in Old Testament times, it was against the Jewish law to even associate, for a good Jew to associate with someone from another nation, a Gentile. But Jesus came to change that. And in Acts 10, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, Peter, gets a vision of uh, of. Uh, a vision of animals that were formerly unclean, that were part of the list of foods that you did not eat if you uh, wanted to follow the law of Moses. But a voice tells him that these animals, these foods are now clean to eat. And Peter realizes that God was telling him something vital, not just about animals but also, and not just about food, but also about people, that there are no longer separate groups in the kingdom of God. There are no longer clean and unclean people. There are just sinners in need of grace. And so Peter begins to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And 
call them to be a part of the church. And then the Apostle Paul comes along. He becomes known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. But then something happened that pitted these two church leaders against each other. Peter and others in the church quit doing what the church was made to do. And so we're going to read about this story in Galatians chapter 2. So if you're able, please stand for this reading of God's word. Galatians 2, starting verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It was pretty bold of Paul to confront Peter. And after all, Peter had been with Jesus for all of his public ministry. He was even part of Jesus' inner circle of three disciples that he took on kind of special excursions long before Paul even was converted. Peter is maybe the most prominent person in the early church, and yet Paul opposed him to his face. Why? Because Peter was not living in step with the truth of the gospel. He was being divisive in a way that was seriously harmful to the church. Now, I want you to imagine. Imagine being a Gentile in the first century. Okay? You're living your life, you're swearing allegiance to the, em the Roman emperor, you are worshiping the gods, Apollo and Mars and Hermes, and then one day you're talking to a coworker and you find out that he is a Christian. And he's following this man named Jesus, and he tells you that there are not many gods, there's only one true God who made everything. And even though we rebelled against him, he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and then to be, he rose again from the dead to offer us eternal life. 
Now, this is a religion that, unlike any that you have ever heard of, and one, what's truly appealing is that in this religion, there's some real certainty in a God who is full of grace and mercy. See, the gods that you've been worshiping, they're all capricious. They don't really care about humans that much. You never really know where you stand with them. And yet, the more you study the teachings of Jesus, you realize uh, you're overwhelmed by his, his life and his love for people. And you, you realize the fact that you can be loved and forgiven and know for certain you'll have life after death. But going to the church meetings is hard because they, your local church meeting meets at the home of a Jewish person and you're not Jewish. You've, you've always known them to be very exclusionary and very separate and, and most of the leaders in this early church were born Jewish. Even Jesus was. And you don't understand that culture. You don't understand why circumcision and all of the food and cleanliness laws. You've never kept the holy days. But when you go to the church meeting, you find out that none of that matters. You find out that your relationship with God is based upon your trust in Jesus. Not about all that other stuff. And you can't believe it when Peter, the, the, the great apostle, comes to town and he shares a meal with you and your family. And he teaches you about the scriptures and about how Jesus has fulfilled all of the scriptures. And all your life you've been looking to belong somewhere and to be known and loved. And the community of this new church is completely unlike the world that you know. You're familiar with the world you know is a dog-eat-dog world where people will do anything to get ahead. And there's a strict separation of classes. But in the Christian community, you find people who are kind and loving, generous to the poor, sharing what they have, committed to marital faithfulness and loving their neighbors. And you've finally found a new, true spiritual family. But then the bottom drops out. One day you go to, to eat with some of the believers, and when you come into the room, you see that there are some new, new people there, clearly Jewish elite by their robes and tassels, and they're sitting over at one table with Peter, and then the Gentile believers are sitting at another table, and when you try to get Peter's eye, he pretends he doesn't see you. And then when you try to go sit at his table, one of the guys in the robe says, no, you can't sit here. You're not clean. You're not eating kosher foods. You haven't been circumcised. You think, what? You can't believe it. What happened? Peter told you that Christianity was all about faith in Jesus, loving God, loving neighbor. And now there's all this other stuff. And now you're being told you have to follow not just Jesus, but Moses too. And when Paul hears this report, he's furious. He's furious at Peter because Peter's acting out of what? Fear. And he's causing divisions in the church. He's making the Gentile believers feel like second-class citizens. And worst of all, he's compromising the gospel. Because he's making people think that Jesus isn't enough. 
to save you. By his actions, Peter's implying that you have to add all these works of the law to faith in order to be saved. That's why Paul writes the book of Galatians. That's what this book is all about. And in verse 16, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And he tells Peter, Peter, you're not living a step with the gospel. You're being a hypocrite. You're saying one thing and doing another, and you're hurting the church. Now, the interesting thing here, what I want you to notice, is that Paul, he's taking a risk by opposing Peter and by writing the book of Galatians, too. It is, it is his most combative book by far. But he's taking a risk because he's, he's risking further schism. He's risked, risking being seen as divisive. But for Paul, the risk was necessary because this was a gospel issue of first importance. See, here's the thing. It's not always wrong to be divisive. There are times when being divisive is what God would have you to do. There are times to break fellowship in order to be faithful to Christ. Paul shows us how to do it well. Peter shows us how to do it poorly and with wrong motivations. But let's ask the question, what is worth breaking fellowship over? What's worth leaving a church or a denomination for? Well, let me suggest a few things. Number one, uh, denying the truthfulness of Scripture. How is this a gospel issue? Well, it, if you don't believe that the Bible is true, then you will not have confidence that the gospel message, that the Jesus it presents, is true. So if your church starts talking about how parts of the Bible are just myth or made up, or starts teaching things that obviously contradict the clear teaching of Scripture, that's an issue worth confronting and possibly dividing over. In fact, the denomination that we are a part of did just that in 1973. It, its founders uh, felt like, believed the denomination they were a part of had quit believing in the authority and the truthfulness of Scripture. And they divided because it was a gospel issue. Another thing worth, another issue worth breaking fellowship over is adding works to faith in order to be saved. This very thing that Peter was doing and what Galatians is all about. Salvation, Paul says, must be about grace through faith alone. That is how you are saved. Does that mean that good works are unimportant? No, but good works flow from faith. They flow from a heart that has been changed by the gospel. They do not earn salvation. And it's important that we get that order correct. So if a group in the church starts to teach that in order to be saved, you've got to give away half of your money and you've got to commit to doing 10 hours of service in the church each week and you've got to do this and this and this in order to be saved, that's a group that needs to be confronted. 
Third thing, third issue worth breaking fellowship over would be spiritual or physical abuse by church leaders. Because when a church leader is abusive towards those in his care, he is representing Jesus and representing Jesus as being abusive and a bully. And that goes to the very heart of the gospel. And if the church allows this behavior, even when they know it's going on, those who are spiritual should confront them and make an issue of it. Friends, we should be divisive when the honor of Christ is at stake, when gospel issues are the issue. The problem, though, is that we too often make so many other issues gospel issues that really aren't. Uh, some examples. Some churches teach that you can, they mandate that you can only read the King James Bible. <laughs> now, the problem with that is that the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew. The King James Bible didn't come until the 1500s. So for hundreds of years, <laughs> no one read the King James Bible. And to, to mandate, it's not even the best English translation. So to mandate it is at best silly, at worst divisive. Other churches bar their people from dancing or going to the movie theater and threaten excommunication if they do those things. But neither of those is expressly forbidden in the scriptures. And certainly neither is a gospel issue. My friend Mike had a, had a family leave his church because they were singing from hymn books instead of using PowerPoint that they were used to. Can we agree? Not a gospel issue? I was in a church where a man got very upset because one of the singers started using a tambourine when she was singing. That is not proper for Presbyterian worship. That may be true, I don't know. Not a gospel issue. Not one to be divisive and break fellowship about. There is an old saying that's very wise. In, in essentials, unity and the non-essentials liberty or freedom in all things charity we need to have unity in the essential things salvation issues the things that we're going to recite core doctrine in the apostles creed in just a little bit but with non-essential things like worship instruments technology issues there's freedom and we should not break fellowship over these non-essentials. We should give freedom in them. But the big question then is, okay, well, how do we overcome then the wrong kind of divisiveness? The Peter and Galatians 2 kind of divisiveness. Well, it starts with looking at our motives. Because I think a lot of the time when we are needlessly divisive, it is because we're trying to prove a point. It so often becomes about needing to win an argument, about having to prove our rightness, our superiority over others, no matter how small the issues. Uh, one of the churches where I was a pastor years ago, we were doing a remodel of the sanctuary, and there was a man who was put in charge of painting the church, and he picked out the color, and he began painting, and about an hour into it, the senior pastor walked into the sanctuary, and he saw pink. And he said, this sanctuary will not be pink. 
And so he picked out a different color, gave it to the painter. And, uh, but the painter happened to also be an interior decorator. And this was, he said, no, this, this is the right color for this environment. And the senior pastor said, nope, we're not doing pink. And it became a standoff. And it very quickly became not about what is best for the church, but about who is right and who has the power to make this decision. And it was needlessly divisive. Here in Galatians 2, though, Paul says, when the gospel changes me, it is no longer about my preferences. My preferences are no longer the primary thing. It's no longer my wants that dominate. It's what God wants for me. It's what Christ is doing in me. Look at, look at verse 20. Such a wonderful verse. We've been learning this song, uh, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. It comes from this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who, who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it mean that a Christian has been crucified with Christ? Well, it means that you've died to your former life of sin, but it also means that you have died to needing to justify yourself. You've died to needing to be right. Your motivation is no longer having to prove myself good. My motivation now is to show how Jesus is good, to magnify Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when I do good works, it is Christ working through me. And so when we get upset about something in the church, maybe the first question to ask is, would Jesus be upset about this? Would this be a priority for him? Sometimes it might be. Jesus is the one who came and cleared the temple and made a whip and whipped those who were abusing uh, the church. But would it be a priority for him? Should it be a priority for me? Or have I just had my pride hurt in some way? Do I need to maybe repent of that pride, forgive the hurt, look to Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me? Jesus is the ultimate uniter. Satan is the ultimate divider. It was Jesus who came to tear down the wall of hostility, first between us and God, but also between us and one another. And in John 17, Jesus prays fervently that the, that the, for his church that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He's pleading with the Father to keep his people united, and yet we divide so easily over the color of the carpet. Or nobody asked me about my vacation. Brothers and sisters, love covers a multitude of sins. Blessed is the man or woman who works hard to keep the peace and purity of the church. Let us live in step with the truth of the gospel and stay united in the gospel. Otherwise, we'll become irrelevant like movie pass. Let's pray.
Father, we, we are so grateful that you sent your son Jesus to build this new community. And in him, we are united as a body, with him as the head. And we have only have a possibility of existing together in any kind of fellowship, in any kind of loving communion, because he is holding us together. Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, would you teach us how sweet it is to have fellowship, how good and precious it is when brothers sisters, and sisters dwell together in unity. And would you teach us the disciplines it takes to keep that unity and to know the difference between the things that are of first importance and those things that are not essential and are not worth dividing over. May we ultimately have such a love for the kingdom of God that the, the small things we can let go and allow love to cover a multitude of sins. Now we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and friend. Amen.